thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. All right, so then welcome to this Bible study. And uh, we're going to um, conclude our study of the book of Exodus tonight by looking at the Mass in light of the Old Testament. Before I do so, I just wanted to ask you, how many of you have seen the movie The Right? The Right. Um, It is... um, it is a, um, a wonderful movie. I've just seen it a couple of days ago. And um, very faithful to the church and presents the priesthood in a very positive light. The movie is about a, a seminarian who go to Rome to undergo training in the rite of exorcism. And he is sent to an older priest uh, played by Anthony Hopkins who does a marvelous job. And this older priest is an exorcist. And so he's going through rites of exorcism. But the focus really is on the power of the priest, which I thought came really clear and loud. So if you are, um, if you are uh, squeamish about these sort of things, please don't go see the movie. Uh, if you're not, then um, it is a movie that will really strengthen you and uh, make you understand the power of the priesthood, uh, which came very, very uh, loud and clear in the movie. Very well done. Um, so, again, I think if you can, I would uh, strongly recommend that uh, you go see it because you, we want to encourage that kind of movie. It's a movie based off a true event because John Paul II had uh, requested that there be training for the, uh, in, uh, for the exorcists. And so now in the United States, we have 14 exorcists, which, is still, uh, which falls short from the number required. Uh, the Pope wanted to have at least one exorcist in every diocese. We don't have that yet. And, um, and so uh, there is a priest who is in Sacramento who, uh, who has undergone that training and some reporters got interested and, um, and uh, interviewed him and then someone wrote a book about this whole event and these folks got interested by the book and decided to make a movie and they dramatized it by making the seminarian being a doubter, sort of a, a doubting Thomas. And it was extremely powerful because in the line, uh, Father uh, Lucas, who's played, who's actually a real priest in Italy, who was an exorcist, played by Anthony Hopkins, which is, he's an incredible actor, looks at uh, Michael, who's the seminarian, and tells him, Michael, remember, the fact that you do not believe that the devil exists does not mean he's not going to come after you. And the, the theater, I went to see it on Friday, 
Oh, Friday. When did I go? No, on Sunday? No, Saturday, Saturday. At 10.40, it was raining. It was dark. And I get to the theater, because I like to go to the theaters when it's empty. This is what I like to do, because I... It was half full, and mostly youth. So I thought to myself, there is no coincidence. These people have been drawn here for a reason. So when he said that, as I was watching the movie, I was saying a whole bunch of Hail Marys for all these people in this theater, because there was a reason for them to be there. And I'm sure as they were leaving the theater, they must have been thinking, because they make a really good point at showing two things, the existence of the evil, and more importantly, the power of the priest. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit was working for them because at the end, there is a scene where you really clearly see the priest as the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes through the priest. It was very powerful. I thought, very well done. So again, if you're squeamish, I'm not saying you should do that. But if you're not, definitely a good movie to see. All right. And it's actually connected, in a sense, to, the, um, to this particular study because... It is really the meaning of the tabernacle in light of Christ. Now, you know, we've spent quite a bit of time on Exodus. And again, by way of recapitulation, let's um, focus on the essential. I hope that by now you do not think or believe anymore that the central point of the book of Exodus is the Ten Commandments. Or only the Ten Commandments. Which is the usual thinking, right? It was, oh, well, the Exodus is about, you know, Moses and the water and this and that and the other. And then the Ten Commandments. And that's it. Nothing else. And so what is occulted, what is being hidden, is the tabernacle and all the liturgy surrounding it. And I hope that by now, the idea that in our lives, liturgy, morality, and spirituality are fundamental to a good life. You can't live a good life without these three. I'll say it again, you cannot Don't take it from me. Take it from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Today we live in the world where concupiscence... How many of you understand the word concupiscence? And what concupiscence is? Okay. How many of of the youth who go to university have ever heard any teacher use even the word concupiscence? doesn't exist, right? It's gone. Bye-bye. Right? Concupiscence fundamentally means a, the um, rebellion of the passions against right reason. So in us, there are passions, which are the movements of the body, corresponding to appetites. In a good life, the passions serve right reason. Right reason is illuminated through wisdom, through wisdom, by the truth. So, you know, they tell you, well, you know, do whatever your reason says. Yeah, as long as reason is illuminated by the truth. Right? The passions, however, are like a bunch, a pack of wild dogs. Why is that? Because of original sin. Brings us back to the very beginning of Genesis. If you recall from the very beginning of Genesis, before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and knew no shame. Why they did not know any shame? Because 
they did not need to protect their nakedness from the gaze of the other. Why? Because the gaze of the other saw in their nakedness a gift, not an object to be abused. Why? Because passions were ordered according to right reason. When they rebelled, there was a fundamental breakdown in their constitution. And what did they do? They saw that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves. Why? Because now shame entered into their conscience. And what is the purpose of shame? To protect us from the predatory gaze of the other. Today, we live in a culture that wants us to believe that there is no shame. How so? We live in a culture that encourages people to dress whichever way they want in utter disregard to right reason. We live in a culture where girls are told they can dress whichever way they want and that their behavior has absolutely no impact on others. And if there is someone who looks at them lustfully, it's his problem. It is true that it's his problem, but it's also utterly irresponsible on the part of the girls to do that. Why? Because if you had a million dollars in cash, you know full well that it would be utter irresponsibility on your part to walk outside in a transparent bag holding a million bucks. That sounds obvious. But when you think about the body, the body of a woman, which is worth far more than a million bucks, now that is okay to uncover it and to expose it to the wiles of the world. You see how when morality is divorced from spirituality and from liturgy, we become irresponsible. Concupiscence enters the world in the form of the Disorder of the passions. The Lord comes and through the liturgy gives us the means to fight that. First, baptism that incorporates us into the life of Christ. Then through Holy Communion that feeds us. And in that process is giving us the means to do what? To grow in the virtues. What are the virtues? The virtues are... Good habits. Good habits. Now, what do I mean by that? If I were to hit you on your knee with the edge of my hand, what happens to your leg? Lightly. I'm just saying you lightly. What happens to your leg? It jerks, right? Do you have to think about that movement? No. Your leg is doing what is right on its own, right? Do you notice that? Your leg acts according to right reason on its own. If I've knocked you on your knee and your leg went sideways, we all know something is wrong. Yeah? Your leg is not acting according to right reason. Yeah? 
Again, the key here, you don't have to think about it, do you? It does it on its own. Yes? Virtue is like that. You are virtuous when you act like that without having to think about it, without any effort on your part. It has become a habit. You do it as a matter of course without even thinking about it. You've acquired virtue. Do you understand that? If you see a piece of cake, a piece of cheesecake, you stop in front of it and you struggle over whether you should eat it or not, you haven't acquired the virtue of temperance. You're in the process of. You understand? If you struggle with lust, if your eyes trail and you watch somebody, you haven't acquired temperance. You may be in the process of. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect means that the life of virtue flows in you habitually, without effort. That is the perfection that God expects of us. That's what He wants us to reach. We live in the world who wants you to believe otherwise. Do what you feel like doing. Translation, follow your passions. You're not hurting anybody if you're doing this. As long as it is between, as long as you don't hurt anybody, it's okay. That's not a problem. Right? We live in the world that invites you to vice. Because the world is a sum total of humanity that is wounded by original sin. And because of concupiscence, our inclination is to sin. Do you understand? Our fallen nature, not our nature, our fallen nature left to its own self tend to sin. It isn't neutral. Left to our own device, we will sin. It's a given. We on our own cannot combat that sin. We are unable to fight it because of the effect of original sin that live in us. If we do not see our lives as a daily spiritual combat, we've already lost the battle. Because we are unprepared to fight the good fight. If we do not see our lives as a spiritual combat daily, we've lost the battle. And how do we see our lives as a spiritual combat? Only when we are in conversation with Christ. And that means every event, every word, every encounter, every occasion that we have in our day, we see it as a word from Christ, as Jesus talking to us. And when we do so, we are now prepared to do battle. To get to that level, on our own, we can't. We need to be fed, hence the liturgy. So, the more you understand that your life must be liturgical, and it's in two ways, and I'll explain that. It has to be liturgical. The more you realize that your life must be liturgical, the more you realize where your center is, the more you are willing to do battle. 
Without the liturgy, apart from the liturgy, you can't win this battle. It is impossible. And the whole purpose of the Old Testament is to precisely show us that. The book of Genesis, we've seen it, is what? It's a, you can title it almost what? A book of failures. Adam failed. Cain failed. The whole Canaan line failed. Abraham failed. Jacob failed. The firstborn of the whole lineage is a line of failure. All of them. And it continues on down. Aaron the high priest failed. David failed. Solomon failed. The kings of Israel failed. What is the message? What is the message? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, do you believe that? Do you really believe that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing? I'm willing to bet that the answer, the real, true answer is no. We don't believe that. Let me give you an example. How many of you believe that apart from Christ, you can't brush your hair? You want to show you don't believe that? It's very easy. Because after brushing your hair, how many of you turn to the Lord and say, Thank you, Jesus, for helping me brush my hair. Who would do such a thing? Who would thank, who would say thank you for brushing my hair? A three-year-old. A child. But we are grown-ups. We know better. We don't need to thank Jesus for brushing our hair. Yeah. There you see concupiscence. Right there. Pride. Envy. Jealousy. All the vices of our soul are typified in all those things that we think we can do on our own for which we do not need Jesus. Notice how every day we betray Him. Every day we betray Him because we do not believe in His Word. Apart from me, you can do nothing. No, Lord, that's not true. There's a lot I can do without you. I can drive my car. I can go to work. I can lift a fork. I can cut the meat. I can see. I can read. I can do all those things without you. It's only when I have a big problem that you get into the picture. When I'm sick. When I have a big problem. Then, now, yes. But until then, no. I can take care of myself. Thank you very much. This is concupiscence in action. Do you see it? Do you see how we all have it? Do you see how we all suffer from it? None of us escapes it. So we're called to a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle requires three things. The liturgy, in which we give glory to God, and in return God feeds us. Morality, the Ten Commandments, the laws, the virtues, where we learn to become holy, to become perfect, and spirituality, the time we take to pray on our own, to be in the presence of the Lord, to hear His voice talking to us, to truly become in union with Him. The three facets of a Christian life. Without these three, 
it is on our without these three we are not working for the salvation of our souls so if you think i go to mass every sunday i fulfill my obligation i'm done you're not you just receive the food required for you to do work you'd be like a kid who lives at home and says you know i eat my cereals and i eat my lunch i eat my dinner and i'm done there's nothing else for me to do I don't have to work. I don't have to study. I don't have to be obedient. I have to learn all. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to. I'm done. No, you're not. This is just the beginning. Then you go out and do what you must. Then you grow in the virtues. Okay, so now I'm, I'm, you know, I do my chores. I clean the house. I do everything. But I I never take time to sit down with my father or my mom to have a conversation with them. Or to, say, to tell them my appreciation. Or that I, I just do what I have to do. How does that sound? You have a kid. He's great. He eats what you give him to eat. He does his chores. He's a straight A student. He never sits down and have a conversation with you. He doesn't think it's even necessary. Now what do you think of that? Well, how many of you take time at the end of your day to sit down with Jesus and say thank you? Here's the day. This is how it went. Here are the good things that have happened. Here are the things where I failed. Help me to do better tomorrow. How many of you get up in the morning and say, Good morning, Jesus. Thank you for this day you've given me. Do you understand? Is this when, you, when, when Jesus becomes natural to you, when He becomes part of your life, when He is the integral part of your life, that you really become to live a life of faith. Until then, it's a show, it's a pony and uh, a dog a pony show. Do you understand? The whole Old Testament, according to St. Irenaeus, is a recapitulation of a Christian life. One of the reasons why Marcionism was refuted by the church as the early heresy, Marcion decided that, hey, now that we have the New Testament, we can do away with the old stuff. We don't need it. We have the New Testament, what do we need the old for? And that was the very first heresy that the church rejected. Stating that you just can't get rid of the old. One of the reasons is this notion of recapitulation. And the idea is that the Old Testament is a recapitulation of our own lives. We have to be, in a sense, in in a sense, walking with God through the Old Testament to reach the new. At every stage of our lives. It doesn't mean we have to go and become Jews again to become Christian. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that in the spiritual realm, when we study the Old Testament, we see ourselves as we're growing into perfection to reach the new. We have to understand the laws, the Ten Commandments, to be able to reach the Beatitudes, the other aspect of it. Hence this whole study. And... The liturgy of the Old Testament we see in Exodus, that we've been talking about, oftentimes mirrors our own appreciation of the Mass. More often than not, we are more suited to the liturgy of the Old Testament than we are to the New. I want to show it to you. Um, The church these days recommends that we fast an hour before Mass. And a lot of people... Think of it this way, an hour before communion. You get it? An hour before communion. So, if I am going to receive communion at 10 o'clock, that means 
I can eat all the way until 9. So what is first and foremost on our mind? Food. Now, picture the liturgy of the Old Testament. What do you do when you go to the, to the, to the tent? What do you bring there? Let's say you're bringing a peace offering. What's a peace offering? A lamb. You're bringing a lamb. What does the priest do with the lamb? He kills it and he cooks it. You get a piece of it. Now think about that. As part of the liturgy, you're actually preparing food that you're going to eat. It's barbecued. Do, do, you, do you see what I'm trying to tell you? See how in the old liturgy it catered to their senses because of weaknesses that they could not over, overcome since they were not being fed spiritually? And so often we fall into that trap. And we are now at the doorway of Lent, aren't we? Yes? And these days, Lent has become such a flimsy business. Well, you know, if you can't fast, you know, give up something. And I say to you, fast. Unless you have a medical condition that prevents you from fasting, cut the you-know-what and fast. And here's one way to do it which I find very simple, uncomplicated, black and white. I like that. From midnight to noon. From midnight to noon, the following day. From Monday through Saturday. No food, no water. No drink, no coffee, no nothing. Midnight to noon. No food, no water, no drink, no coffee, no nothing. Throughout all of Lent, no meat. No sweets. No coffee, no soda. Now you're talking. Now you're fasting. God in Lent gives you special graces for you to go through the fast. You're not on your own. The problem when you hear me talk this way, if your heart grows heavy, is because you're still thinking you can do it or you can't do it on your own. Apart from me, You can do nothing. You can even chew a piece of meat. So therefore, trust in me, the Lord says. Trust in Him. He will show you how you do it. Do not be afraid. You need that. You need that discipline of fasting to help you fight concupiscence. Otherwise, you're back in the Old Testament. You're back in that tent. Because you want the Lamb. You're not worshiping on the altar of the Lord. You're worshiping on the altar of your, of, your, of your tummy. You see? You see how concupiscence grips you and holds you back and prevents you from growing in a life of virtue? Oh, everything I told you right now, by the way, our ancestors, like 40 years back, did all of this and more because they did not touch any... They did everything I told you plus nothing white. No eggs, no cheese, no bread, nothing white. They did all of this. Be not afraid. This is a wonderful season filled with the grace of the Lord to grow in holiness. Which brings us straight back to the liturgy. The whole point of the liturgy of the Old Testament, the whole point of liturgy in Exodus was what? Wean them away from what? He structured a liturgy that was acceptable to them. Had he told them, look, 
for the liturgy, you're going to come over and you don't bring any sacrifice. You bring the manna and you eat nothing and you spend two hours in prayer. What do you think would have happened? They would have ran barefoot to Egypt. Yeah? Barefoot. He gave them a liturgy that resembled what they did in Egypt, but turned towards Him. Because in the Psalms, He tells them, I abhor these sacrifices. I need none of the meat. It isn't for me. It is for you. It was a compromise. Because that's all they could do. And so often, we are like them. So often, we are like them. One of the virtue we talk about, the fourth cardinal virtues are what? Prudence, temperance, fortitude. Fortitude. That's the virtue that allows you to do great and courageous things for the glory of God. Fortitude. Lent teaches you fortitude. Lent teaches you to become strong and do great things for the Lord. The liturgy of the Old Testament, as we cite, could not. It could not teach them fortitude because there was nothing in it that would feed their souls. You understand that today all our problems lie first and foremost in our soul. If you're suffering from any form of, any form, any disorder, anything that is weighing you down, anything that is causing you to move away from God, anything that is preventing you from living a life of peace, if there is any anxiety in you, if there is any doubt, any discouragement, any tendency to despair, any sense that you're not important, any sense that your life is not worth it, it begins in the soul. It begins in the disorder of the soul that we call concupiscence. It starts right there. It starts right there. You know, it's very interesting that when you look at the statistics of uh, Alcoholic Anonymous, 5%, these are official statistics from Alcoholic Anonymous, AA, 5% reach sobriety. 5%. Now, if that's not failure, I don't know what that is. Okay? And by the way, um, if you know somebody or you... Uh, if you know somebody who's an alcoholic or somebody who is taken to any of these addictions, please do not refer them to Alcoholic Anonymous or any of these 12 steps programs. They are set, they're dead set against the faith. They're fundamentally Masonic in their structure. It may come as a surprise or may shock you, but these are structures that are set against the teachings of the church. And these are structures that remove people away from the faith. Please do not send them there. And if you are interested to know more about that, you can talk to me after. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from the liturgy, you can do nothing. You need deliverance. You need prayers. You need the grace of the Holy Spirit poured in your soul to strengthen you so you can do what you have to do. And that is what Christ came to give us. So, be liturgical first. Commit to the liturgy. Commit to the sacraments. Commit to go to confession regularly. Regularly. 
at least once a month. At least once a month. Once a week would be much better. If you're suffering from um, uh, masturbation, if you're suffering from uh, a tendency to alcohol, from gambling, from any kind of addiction, confession every week. Over and re- you're going to confess the same thing, sin over and over again, and God in time will give you the grace to overcome it. It always does. There is no other way. Concupiscence holds us, and the only way to break us, to break it, is by the life of the liturgy, coupled with then training in morality, and then a spiritual life of prayer. Daily rosary, the intercession of Our Lady, calling upon St. Michael the Archangel, and then trusting God's providence to guide us through it all. Virtue of hope. All of these, they did not have any old liturgy, as we saw. It was structured to be a sign. The outer court was a sign to represent the passion of our Lord. It was there to teach them and to recognize in the sacrifice of the animals the Lord himself. The inner court was structured to teach them about the glory of the church. God gave them these signs so that they may recognize him when he comes. We have that reality today. We live in it. In our churches. God is amongst us. He is with us. He has come to feed us. He has come to strengthen us. And we oftentimes do not recognize Him in our daily life. When we brush our hair. When we do anything. Why is that? Why do you think? Why is it? Let me ask this question. Why is it, why is it that with all the graces that we have in the Catholic Church, so many Catholics be, act in a, a, the action of so many, the, the moral actions of so many Catholics are indistinguishable from the atheists? Why is that? Why is it that the Catholics in their behavior do not show forth the glory of God? Why do you think this is? But why do we have a hardness of heart? I mean, we have God in our midst. He feeds us. How come we behave like those who are not fed by Him? That is the crisis of the church today. That is why so many youth are cynical about the church. It would seem that we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. Why is that? Yeah, True. This is a very good way of saying concupiscence. Because in our broken nature... We tend to misbehavior and behavior. But why is it that we have the Lord himself, who we receive in our soul, he was supposed to feed us and make us able to be perfect, we still misbehave. Why is that? Lack of faith. Okay. Lack of faith. Not understanding the faith. Not experiencing what? Not experiencing God. That's an interesting one. Come back to this. Society. Society. Not making use of the sacraments. We don't want to be responsible. Political correctness. Do you understand that the fundamental problem we have is that we are not aligned with the truth? We have not understood the purpose of our life. We think the purpose of our life is what? To be happy. To have fun. I haven't heard the big one. To be rich, prosperous, successful. Yeah, 
Pardon? Free. No obligations. Yeah, right? Self-fulfilled. Power. Yeah. What do you call this? Yeah, ego. Yes. It's a deception. We are being deceived. Do you see how the evil one works? There are three enemies we have. The, the flesh, the world, and the devil. The power of the devil is deception. The devil is very happy to make us believe he doesn't exist. Very happy with that. Because he knows when we believe he doesn't exist, our faith is cooled. If you don't believe in hell, if everybody goes to heaven no matter what they do, we don't need faith. There is a fundamental deception that is at work against us through the world who wants us to think that the most important thing is scientific discoveries and scientific knowledge and scientific truths. That our life here on earth is measured by our worth, financial, intellectual, or otherwise. And, obviously, by our looks and our health. Do you know how many times I hear these words, health is the most important thing? By well-meaning people, health is the most important thing. Really? Well, if health is the most important thing, we're fools. Why? Because you're going to lose it. Try as you may, and 150 years from now, you're dead. I mean, that's a certainty. I'm not being a prophet here. It's a scientific certainty. You are, we are all dead in 150. None of us is here. We're gone. Health is the most important thing. Really? The truth is Jesus Christ. That's our problem. The truth is not an idea. It's not about being rich or powerful. Notice the ideas, the concepts. Rich, powerful, successful, having fun, be free, be ourselves. Be The problem is that the truth is a person. That's the problem. We don't like that. Because that means that in order to, be, to know the truth, we have now to engage in a relationship with somebody and be dependent on him. That we don't like. Because now we are not the masters of the truth. He is. I am the truth. The truth is not a something, it's a somebody. And that somebody is Jesus Christ. And to make matters worse, he's on the cross. Now if you were sitting on a golden throne, and there were dollars flowing from both sides of the throne, the truth would be a lot easier to swallow. But him being on the cross, now that we don't like. Anything but the cross. Because what is the cross? Let's not go to the extremes. Let's keep it simple, small. I just told you, fasting. Look how you reacted. When I said, noon, midnight to noon, no food, no water, and throughout the entire season of, of fasting, from Monday through Saturday, no soda, no coffee, no drinks, no ice cream, no chocolate, water, no meat. Now, Ouch. It hurts. Fasting is the cross. And even then, we can't accept that joyfully. You see how we're deceived? The reason why Catholics can't expose a better moral behavior is because they don't want to be Catholics. They are Catholics wannabes. 
they are half of a foot inside the church and the rest of their bodies outside. That's why. Because when Catholics are truly Catholics, what do they become? Saints. They become saints. That's the proposition before us. It is completely radical. You either become a saint or you're out. There is no middle ground. There is no compromise. There is no discussion. Either you are going to become a saint and you're going to say on your knees, Lord, I want to be a saint and I commit my life to become a saint and I'll do whatever it takes to become a saint or you're out. That's it. That's the liturgy. That's why you come to the liturgy. You come to the liturgy to give glory to God so that in return, He makes you a saint. Now notice how concupiscence plays on us. If I told you the purpose of the Catholic Church makes you all millionaires. Actually, let's make it better. Billionaires. Right? Just come to Mass every Sunday. Actually, come to Mass. Every, if you want to become a billionaire, come to Mass every day for a year. At the end of the year, you each receive a billion dollars. How many people you think will be here? Okay, what, are, what is propelling them? Where do they get that energy that they didn't have if I said, come to the church every day, become a saint? Concupiscence, you see? Now, passions are having a field day. Now you've given wild expression to their passions, and they are going to run with it. And here's the tragedy. Here's the tragedy. By the time they get that billion dollars, assuming, let's assume they get the billion dollars, what do you think is going to happen? A year later, what are they doing? They are wishing they could eat the food given to the swines. Because they lost everything. Because in truth, they had nothing but a pile of papers that we ascribe value to. Nothing that could feed their souls. Nothing that could satisfy them. That's deception. And notice how sensitive we are to it. If I told you today you're going to win $100,000, you'd think this is the best day of your life. Maybe not. What about a billion dollars? Is that better? You notice? Concupiscence has these movements in our soul that pulls us out. We have to fight it. God knew that. He knew on our own we can't. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil to contend with, and we can't. You understand that if God did not contain the action of the evil one, if God did not prevent him to exercise his full power against us, if God let loose Lucifer alone, just him, on us, with his full power, we'd all be dead. We will all die. If God did not restrain him because of free will, we would all be dead. Don't take it from me. Take it from Thomas Aquinas. This is how powerful these beings are. We're contending with, with beings who are supremely intelligent. Way more intelligent than we are. Who've been around for billions of years. And who hate us with a hatred that we cannot even understand. You know why? Because in all of us, there is no full, pure evil. None of us is pure evil. Satan is pure evil. We can't even understand that. 
And He hates us in a way we cannot even begin to imagine. This is what we're contending with. That's one. The world is another one. The world is about everything down here. So, our senses are attracted. We're not after the world. And then there is us. On our own. Our hair, our look, our health, our this, our that. Preoccupied with ourselves. Now, stack these three things together. What do you think the chances are for any of us to reach heaven? Pretty much, right? Okay, now ask yourself this question. If you were God, and you're faced with this situation, you are God now. I want you to think for a second, you are God. You have decided you're going to solve this problem. You're going to solve the problem once and for all. What would you do? Hmm? Get rid of the devil. Yeah, we're talking. What else? What else? Get rid of? Well, then you can save them. You get rid of them. No, no. You want to save them. Let's get that straight. You want to save the people. So, getting rid of them, not going to work. But what would you do? Pardon? Free will out. Provide grace. But, I mean, if you're God, wouldn't you just sort of come in and straighten the whole thing? I mean, wouldn't you just fix it? Why don't you just bring a bunch of angels, let them run the whole show, right? And fix the problem once and be done with it. And then we can live in peace. Now, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah? Wouldn't that be nice? Okay, so why didn't he do it this way? What's up with this idea, this absurd idea to come and die on the cross? You see how absurd this is? Do you understand the absurdity of the cross? Why die on the cross for goodness sake? When you had the power to fix the whole thing. You only had to say a word. You're God. And it would be all fixed. Why die on the cross? And then leave us with what? With what? A mess. Look at the world. It's It's a mess. Yeah? Okay, he came. He died on the cross. The world was a mess before. The world is a mess now. What's different? Pardon? But, but, but why have to go through this whole thing? Why not just fix it right away? Now, let me ask you this question. Is God some sort of a sadistic master who wants us to suffer before he says, you're, you're good? Is, is, this, is this what it's all about? So, so why, why do we have to prove anything? When we speak this way, it almost sounds... Like some sort of an administration. You know, it's, it's just cold. Doesn't it? It sounds like a master is saying, show me what you can do and then, right? You know, we're becoming a marine seal or something, or I don't know. We're just becoming part of the... Is that what it is all about? Okay, back to my question then. Why all of this? Yeah. Ah. Opportunity for us to show... Let's take that to its conclusion. Look at it this way. Look at it this way. I'm just giving it to you in a very simple term. Because the beautiful image of the groom and the bride, right? The church is the bride of Jesus. And Jesus is the groom, right? And you will immediately understand what we're talking about when I paint this picture for you. There is this man who is going to the restaurant to meet his fiancée. They're going to get married. He's a very successful lawyer. He sits across from her and he tells her, he tells her that he loves her 
And all through the dinner, all through the dinner, he's on his iPod replying to emails. You're the fiancé. I'm talking to the woman. How would you feel? Raise your voice. Let me hear it. Horrible. Ignored. Unloved. Used. Yeah? Okay. Guys, let's flip it around. You go to the dinner. You're there and you're waiting for her. She shows up and she, she sits down and throughout the whole dinner she talks to you. She, she's talking to you, but she's telling you about her friends. All about her friends. Not once does she stop to ask you, how was your day? How would you feel? Annoyed? Ignored? Yeah? Okay, let me push that a little bit more. Let's say that, let's go back to the girls, right? You happen to be a princess. You happen to be a princess whose father is powerful and wealthy. And he is, was a slave who had nothing owed nothing, and whose life was at the command of your father. You chose him, you raised him up, you gave him the means to get educated, and you gave him the means to become a lawyer, and here he is sitting in front of you, busy tapping away. Now, how does that sound? Now, I can take the same story, flip it around, right? You're the prince, son of a king, and she was a nothing, And you took her from nothing and made her a princess. And now she comes and she talks about her friends. Yeah? He is the Son of God. God Almighty. He came down, lived amongst us, and died for our sake. Why? To show us what? Love. 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 He's saying from the cross, I love you. You are my beloved. You are the one I've chosen from all eternity. You are mine. And what do we do? Now think about your day. What did you do today? Did you stop and say, thank you, Jesus? Did you take the time to think about him? Was he with you in your difficulties? So the image I gave you about the guy who sits and is busy with his iPod is the image of the concupiscence running wild. An image I gave you about the girl who can't keep on talking is the image of the person completely enmeshed in the world. Image of our souls. This is how we treat him. We were worse than slaves. We belonged to the devil. Before being baptized, we were owned by the devil. He came, he paid the price, he freed us. Not only did he free us, he made us part of his family and he gave us part of his inheritance. And he told us, here's the program. I love you, but I'm not going to force myself on you because I love you. Love is gentle. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love cares about the other. Love does not impose itself on anyone. Love is not anger. Love is not impatience. 
So He waits for us in the tabernacle of the church. He waits for us to come and say, Hi, Jesus. And He expects us to return His love. Now, if you truly love somebody, think about that for a second. If you truly love somebody, what do you do? You restructure your entire life so that that somebody is the center of your life. That somebody is the center of you. Once you commit to that, once you say to Him, you are the center of my life, everything revolves around you, then watch and see what happens in your life. How you begin to make a difference wherever you are. How people sense the difference in you and how they are attracted to this difference because it is beautiful. And where does it begin? In the liturgy, in the Mass. The Old Testament liturgy had these signs in it. God, in the beginning, showed the Jews that He is the Creator. He showed them mankind and original innocence, how they were. He showed them the temptation and the fall, the condemnation of our race. He showed them the promise of the woman's seed. Then he showed them how sinners were drowned by the flood. And yet, the call to Abraham and all the patriarchs, all the way leading them to what? The greatest moment in their history, the building of the temple in Jerusalem, which was the heart and soul of their life. The temple, and before that the tabernacle, was the only place on the entire surface of the earth where God was worshipped as He ought. The only place. Think about that for a second. God, in the whole history of the Old Testament, led them to this construction of the temple so that they can celebrate the liturgy. He gave them a small piece of land Not the best, by the way. So that they become a kingdom of priests. So that they can celebrate the liturgy. Why? Because the temple and the liturgy were pointers, were signs to his bride, the Catholic Church. This is how God thinks. This is what he reveals to us. Everything is in this church. Not out there. Here. Here. The patriarch, the prophet, the holy ones of Israel, filled with faith, foretold of the Messiah, and saw what I'm describing to you. And because they saw that, they were saved by it, in faith. In essence, they were early believers. They came before us, but they shared with us the faith we have today. You're standing in their shoes. You are prophets, kings, and priests. Each and every one of you share in the royal priesthood and kingship and prophetic order of Jesus Christ. Your role is to bring wisdom into the world. That's what a prophet does. Being able to interpret the current events according to God's mind and provide guidance to those around you. That's what you're called to do in every profession you choose, wherever you are in the world. That is your primary calling. Whether in a university or at work, you have to bring the wisdom of Christ into your environment to sanctify it. That's your primary calling. 
The tabernacle that was built in the desert was a wandering that would go from place to place for 40 years, 38 to be precise, that would lift up that camp, that tent, and move it from place to place. What was God teaching them? What was the intent behind the fact that they're moving from place to place in a desert? What's the lesson? He's always with them, but where? Exactly. They're in a desert. You get it? They were not in New York or Las Vegas or downtown San Diego by the beach. They're in a desert. What is the intent behind that? But what about your surroundings? The desert. What happens if you wander in the desert on your own? You die, pretty much. You get it? This is the desert. You understand? It's a representation of the world we live in. This is the desert. You wander on your own, you die. So man lives in a world of trials. You're tired, you're weary. And therefore you're what? You're wishing for something better. Hence, there is hope in you. The more you see the world for what it is, the more it should inkill in your heart the hope for something better. The hope for something better. Do you understand? Do you realize? Do you fully realize that the only reason why humanity has not blown itself up to pieces, the only reason why we have not killed each other, is because of the Catholic Church? That's the only reason why we haven't yet managed to kill each other. Because of the church. There is no other reason. Because through the church, the graces of God flow and temper concupiscence and helps us to control ourselves and live a life of virtue. That's why. The tabernacle was, had these parts, the Holy of Holies, the Holies, the Hebrew court. I mean the temple later on. The Holy of Holies, the Holies, the Hebrew court, and the court of the Gentiles, the four parts. Right? The court of the Gentiles was the place where the Gentile would come and worship the temple. The, the, the temple. By the way, the tabernacle was built only by the Jews. The Israelites built the tabernacle. Who built the temple of Solomon? Solomon. Right? But who built it actually? Who did Solomon call upon? The Phoenicians. Representing what? The pagans. Indicating what? That later on, the pagans and the Jews will come together in the church. The tabernacle was a pure Israeli story. The temple became the symbol of the universal church that will open up the whole world in which both Jews and Gentiles will come and participate in the building of the kingdom of God. That was the court of the Gentiles. The Hebrew courts is reserved for those who are of the faith. And then you had the holies, which was the inside of the temple, which no one saw other than the priests. And then beyond that, the holy of holies, where only the high priest would enter once a year on the day of atonement to offer sacrifice. That was the old covenant. God was hidden from them. Truth was only given to the priests. And it was up to them to go out and share it with others. Symptomatic of the entire hierarchy. Truth comes to us from the hierarchy. You want to know truth? Read the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You want to make Jesus the center of your life? 
Grab the Catechism of the Catholic Church and read a paragraph every day. A paragraph from the Catechism of the Catholic Church a day keeps doubt away. Read the Catechism. Cover to cover. Learn your faith. You will be surprised what you find in it. Do not be lukewarm. Read the Catechism. The Holy of Holies was closed by a great veil, 60 by 30 feet. That was the veil that Matthew said, St. Matthew said, was ripped from top to bottom. It was 60 feet wide by 30 feet high. It took 300 priests to lift it up. That's the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the Holy. It was made with 72 colored strands. 72 representing what? Yes, the tribes of also all the nations that came from Noah. Therefore, the entire world. The entire world was separated from God. And it had four colors in it. White, violet, red, and green. Where do we see these colors these days? In the vestments of the priests. White, violet, red, and green. Now, obviously, we had blue in honor of Our Lady. But these primary colors were found in our vestments in the church, and they come to us from the temple. And what is white? White represents waters of baptism. Violet, emblematic of penance. Red, martyr's blood. And green, youthful innocence. White, waters of baptism. Violet, penance. Red, martyr's blood and green youthful innocence. And what does that suggest? It suggests that in order to cross that veil and enter into the holy, you must be what? Baptized. You must do what? Penance. You must be ready to do what? To die a martyr's death. And you must guard yourself in a state of youthful innocence. That is your calling. That is your calling. So, if you are watching, if you are watching programs that promote cynicism, if you crack jokes which are cynical, if you live a life where you constantly doubt of others, if you think it's alright to watch R-rated movies with sexuality in them, if you think it is okay to spend your Sunday afternoon, Sunday after Sunday, following sports passionately, if you think it is okay to drive like a maniac and put the lives of others in danger on the highway, you're not going to enter through that veil. You're not. You have a tough choice to make. We have a tough choice. Every day. Is Jesus the center of our life? Or not? Outside that veil, there was a altar of incense. There was nothing on it. The priest would pour the incense on it to actually, and would incense it, put the, 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 the coal on it, and burn it as a sign, as an offering to God. And it was made out of pure gold. And that represented the cross on which Christ was offered as a pure libation to the Father. Next to it was a candelabrum, which weighed a hundred pounds, made of pure gold, six feet high, 
the height of Christ. And it had seven lamps lit with, the, with pure olive oil. And as I've told you before, the reason was olive oil was because oil, olive is the only fruit. Olive is a fruit, by the way. When it is fully ripe, olive is, the olive is extremely bitter. And in order to get the oil, you must crush it. And that symbolizes the passion of our Lord when He suffered His agony in the Garden of Olives. And He was crushed by the sin of the world and sweated blood. And it is that oil which lights up the candelabrum, and the seven lamps represent the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And when Simeon saw the baby Jesus in the temple, if you remember, he basically said the following, Now thou dost dismiss thy servant, O Lord, according to thy word in peace, because my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the peoples, a light, six, a light to the revelation of the Gentiles, and seven, and the glory of thy people Israel. That is a candelabrum. It is a seven-verse poem that he spoke because he saw in that baby that candelabrum. Today, that candelabrum in our churches is represented by the light that stands by the tabernacle as well as the paschal light and by the bishop. These, this light, the paschal light, represents the bishop who is the light of his diocese, who brings the truth of Christ to the entire diocese and by the priest who teaches truth to his people. That is the light of Christ, which back then was a candelabrum, an object, mute, that could not speak, and today is a living being filled with the power of Jesus that he received from the apostles to impart upon us the truth. Recently, in Australia, I don't know how many people have heard the story, some years back, when the, remember the Pope, the last youth day, World Youth Day was in Australia. The next one is in Spain. And it is always a tradition for the Holy Father, as he goes through, to stop and receive babies and kiss them. And as he was in Australia, he did this. And there is a baby, a girl, who was given to Pope Benedict XVI, and he kissed her and gave her back to her parents. About two weeks ago, or four weeks ago, Remember exactly the date. She's now three years old, and she's playing in her backyard, and her father has a truck, a huge truck. And he was leaving home when he heard the screams of all the neighbors, and he stopped and looked out. He had actually drove his truck over his girl. Think about these big trucks. They rush her to the hospital. She has nothing. There's a picture of her with the mark of the wheel over her tummy as the wheel rolled over her. She has one tiny scratch. No bones were broken. No internal organs were shattered. No internal bleeding. No hemorrhage. Nothing. She went home 
that day with her parents. What do you think this is a sign of? The truth will set you free. Listen to the church. Don't fight the church. Learn. Do not be rebellious. Do not be hard-headed. Do not be stiff-necked. Read your catechism. Commit your life to Jesus. Tell Him, and whatever you do, whatever you want, I'll do whatever you want. Take my life and do with it what you want. I am yours. And see what He will do with you. Do not be afraid. So you can enter through that veil. Because even though for us today the veil doesn't exist here, it exists for all those who are outside. Or those who are in the church, but they're not really of the church. The veil is still on our eyes. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't understand. They're full of doubts. Do you understand? That veil, even though it's not in front of the tabernacle, is before their eyes. St. Paul says so about the Jews. But we can say it about so many Catholics who are in this church, but not of the church. Now, outside, you had this big altar of sacrifice representing Calvary. And where Jesus was going to be crucified. And all the animals were brought over for sacrificing were all symbols of Christ. So that the Jews may be able to recognize him. A lamb to show his innocence. A ram to foretell his power and government. A goat for he bore our sins. A pigeon and a dove because of his two natures. To understand that better, you need to realize that when they went out to get the, uh, an animal to be sacrificed, when they had to sacrifice a lamb, they had to do it in a very specific way. They had to fasten the right forefoot to the left hindfoot, diagonally, and the left forefoot to the right hindfoot. So when you looked at it, what did you see? A cross. Cross. That's how they had to do it. And today, the, the Samaritans, there are still a group of Palestinians who call themselves the Samaritans, who conduct the same sacrifice, do it in the exact same way. Now, they have to tie the lamb this way, and when they, when they have to roast the lamb, they put it on a pole, and they cook the lamb vertically. Why do you think they had to do it this way? Not only that, when they offered the bread and the wine that they brought forth, they had to raise the bread and the wine in four directions. Up, down, left, and right. And the Jews would tell you that that is symbolizing the offering for the, all, for the whole world. And it is true, but we know also that it represents what? The cross. You notice the priest does the same thing because it comes from the temple. There's one more piece I want to read to you because it's very powerful and very touching. Oh, yeah, this is very interesting. When they offered the sacrifice, I just wanted to imagine this because we tend to think of it as, oh, well, it was a small business. It wasn't actually because it was a huge ceremony, very similar to what we see today in our high mass because the high priest would actually celebrate and he would be flanked by, he would be assisted by, um, where is it now? By the Sagan as an assistant priest with 12 priests, six at each side. And there would be a choir of 500 priests. 
and another 500 Levites. A thousand men would sing in that choir while the sacrifice was being offered, foreshadowing the glory of the Mass. Now, to get the animals for the sacrifice, they had to do it in a special way. The temple guards, led by the priests, went out the sheep gate. You know, Jerusalem had many gates. One of them was called the sheep gate. And down into the Cedron Valley, just as they did it when they went out that night with Judas to go get the Lord. They had to get the money from the temple treasury to buy the victim, just as they gave the money to Judas from the temple treasury. The high priest had stretched a bridge across the Cedron stream near Gethsemane, and across that bridge they led each victim, tied and driven, just as they led Christ that night. To the priest they bought the animals, as later they brought the Lord. They led the animals into the temple to the north of the great sacrificial altar, because the Jews saw in the cold, dark north a figure of Lucifer who had deceived Adam and plunged the nations into unbelief and paganism. And they sacrificed the victims towards the north as against the demon and sin resting on the world. At Mass, when the altar is in the eastern end of the church, the gospel is read towards the north as against the demon of infidelity. Used to be the case. They washed the animal to foretell the Passover bath taken by Christ and his apostles. They poured perfume over it to typify the order of good works words and miracles of the God-man. With a rope, they fastened the right forefoot to the left hind foot and the left forefoot to the right hind foot, the cord making a cross, emblematic of Christ fastened to his cross. Everything in the sacrifice of the temple was foreshadowing the coming of Christ because God wanted to teach them about his love, preparing them to accept him. You know what? In our lives, outside the church, he's doing the same thing. Tonight, go back home, spend time and reflect on what happened to you today. And try to see it in the light of Christ. And see how He is speaking to you. And then think, when you are going to go to Mass the next time, are you going empty-handed? Are you coming without any work of penance? Without any work of uh, repentance? There is nothing that you can be sorry about in your day? Nothing at all? Do you end your night without being sorry about anything? There is nothing you did today that offended him in any way, shape or form? Are you perfect? Or is your heart hardened? That's the question. Are you beggars for the liturgy? Or do you come here as a rich man? Needing nothing. Where are you in a spiritual journey? Do you know? And if you don't, why not? You lack nothing. Do you love him as he ought to be loved, or do you love him according to your own whims? Where do you stand before Christ? As the one screaming, crucify him? As a passerby indifferent to his sufferings? As Saint Mary Magdala, repentant and sorrowful? As Saint John, faithful? Or next to Our Lady? sharing in his passion. Where do you stand? What does he mean to you? Liturgy, spirituality, and morality. The whole book of Exodus revolves around those three ideas. And as we move into the book of Numbers, we're going to see how that extends out and continues throughout their pilgrimage until they reach 
the Holy Land. All right, let's end with a word of prayer. Yes, questions? Yes, yes. Yes. So remember, uh, the demons are unleashed in the world today. Right? However, the extent to which they can exercise power is restrained. So when we say that God will unleash all the demons, it does not mean that He will unleash them and give them full reign to exercise their power entirely. That will never happen. Because if that were to happen, it would negate the power of the cross. Make sense? The intent is to say that in those three days of darkness, they're called darkness because precisely the power of temptation would reach such height that the conscience of man is darkened. And we don't know whether it means actual physical darkness, it could, or it means simply a, such level of confusion that truth would become nearly impossible to attain without the graces of God, given specifically with you know, prayers and um, blessed candles and what have you. So today, for instance, we live in darkness. I mean, people do speak of the three days of darkness, but if you look at the state of the world today, we are in darkness. Right? Well, wh- where is that darkness coming from? Well, part is our own doing, but part also is the work of the evil one. So yes, the, de- the demons are prowling the world. Already. And those three days of darkness would be a, a pa- the paroxysm of that kind of darkness. At which point God will put an end to it. But it does not mean that he's allowing them to exercise their dominion to its fullest extent. Do you understand? Okay. Yes. Correct. And that's why I said, very good question. The question is about the right again. It would seem as if I'm saying two different things. I'm saying go see it. But also I say to you that imagination is this faculty by which the angelic order, whether demonic or servants of God, speak to us. They speak to us through our imagination. And that the ancients used to take really good care in forming the imagination of children, which today we've opened completely wide to the influence of the evil one by subjecting our kids to ugly images, ugly um, drawings, and also submitting, submitting so many of our youth to horror movies. So what am I saying, one or the other? My point is this. If you are living a life of faith, God will give you the immunity, if you will, against these images. So they actually do not um, imprint themselves on your imagination. In other words, if you are really close to your guardian angel, you ask him to protect you. And he will prevent these images from becoming imprinted in your soul, where later on the devil can use them as a puppet to come and scare you. So I know, for instance, a friend who is... uh, who would not see this movie because she had, she had seen a movie with the poltergeist when she was younger, and it still has a very powerful hold on her. That's how the devil acts. Right? So when you see a horror movie, you may not be affected by it now, but you've stored images in your imagination that the evil one will be able to use later against you. Hmm? But if you're not, if you've purified your imagination, and you're living a life of faith, and you do not, for instance, you, I mean, simple example, are you afraid of the dark? Right? If you're afraid of the dark, don't go see the movie. Obviously, you have work to do. If you can't be in your house all by yourself, and it's completely dark, and you're walking around, and as far as you're concerned, it is as if there is light. No different. It's just there's, you know, the only thing you can, might do, bump yourself into something. Right? 
then don't go see the movie. You have work to do. You have a purification of the imagination that you have to do. You ask your, Our Lady to help you go through this so that she can purify your imagination and free it from the influence of the evil one because he has a hold on you. You understand? If you are afraid of the dark, what is dark? Absence of natural light. So what is dark, therefore? It is natural. Yes? Dark is actually very good. Because if you sleep with light, what happens to your eyes? They have to contract. So when you get up in the morning, you have a headache. Because your eyes can't relax. Yeah? You need dark so you can relax. It's a good thing. When you turn it into an evil thing, you've taken something which is naturally good, and you turn it into something that is not good, what is that an indication of? Somebody's messing with you. Get it? So then you have to pray to your guardian angel, you have to pray to Our Lady, St. Joseph, Terror Demons, to help you overcome this. If you are not afraid of the dark, if you have no concerns about any of this stuff, you might then consider going to see this movie or wait till it comes out on DVD and watch it in plain daylight instead of being in a dark room and you know, do what you must. That's why I'm being careful. I don't recommend it outright to everybody. You need to know yourself the right. It's a great movie about uh, uh, an exorcist. So anyhow, yes. Right, very good question. Here's the deal. Um, if you had 12 guys standing out there, each one of them is holding a loaf of bread. And one of them is holding a loaf of bread that just came out of the oven. Are you going to be able to tell the difference? You're right there. Aren't you going to smell it? Aren't you going to go, that smells good? You're that loaf of bread. That's the idea. Uh-uh. You can tell the difference. You'll be able to tell. St. Francis used to say, preach all at all times. And whenever necessary, use words. Faith is communicated in a mysterious way, first and foremost, through your sanctity. So the more you focus on Jesus the more that sanctity spreads to others. So, for instance, give you simple examples. You're working with a group of men, and they use foul language. If you tell them, when you're talking to me, please do not use foul language, and if they know you're doing it out of charity and out of love, you've not said anything, they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, and they'll make an effort to stop. They notice, eventually, you don't speak this way. You're catechizing, you're evangelizing, you're reducing their suffering. They don't know that yet. You haven't said a word about the Lord or about the faith. You wait for an opening. God will put before you the people He wants you to touch. But oftentimes people will notice there's something different about you. That's how we catechize, first and foremost. And then they'll be interested to look... Okay, why are you different? First, they have to see the difference and taste it, and then they're going to go, okay, tell me, what's so different about you? Another example. I work in a company 
for investments. It's an investment company. And it is set, most people who work there are really interested by investments. So we get to talk and they say to me, so they know I'm married. How many kids do you have? And I say, I have seven. They almost fall backward <laughs> hearing I have seven kids. Now, I didn't say anything. I just said I had seven kids. And they look at me as if I am a Martian. I mean, I've just, they, they just saw, you know, now they believe in extraterrestrials or something. And then I say, casually, we don't have seven because we want it to stop. Actually, we want it more. Now, they're, yeah. You, you bet that night they're talking about me in our family. I and mean, we met that wacko. He got seven kids. <laughs> right? They're, they're besides, they can't, it makes no sense to them. There's a short circuit that happened in their head. That's catechism. And they look at me and say, well, you haven't lost your head or something? No. You, yeah, you know, I'm happy being home. I wanna, I'd like to have more kids. What? You just, the light of truth shines. You see? That's how we catechize. Most of the time, that's what we have to do. By our actions, we convict the world. And then it's the choice. They either respond, and they want to know more, or they don't. That's what we have to do. Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa cared for the poor, for those who were dying. Did you know that Mother Teresa never ever once, once she was taking care of these poor, spent time catechizing them? She didn't do any of this. All she did is care for the poor. Make sure that when they die, they die with dignity. Look at the results. That's what we have to do. Make sense? Any other question? Yes. I don't know if I would want to even try to find this. Um, you see, I like simple rules because then I, I know I can deal with them. One of the rules is that we ought to know our faith to the degree that we can. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is a wonderful way to do it. Therefore, without having to worry about what others are doing or not doing, it's enough for me to know that that's what I'm asked to do, and therefore, I'll just do it. And if it is about reading a paragraph every day, it's not a huge imposition on my time, I can do it. So, i just do it. I'm fulfilling what the church asks me to do, therefore I'm pleasing God, and I'm learning about the truth. I'm, I'm getting closer to our Lord. Now, if the Lord chooses to give special illumination to other people without them reading anything, that's His business. It is entirely possible, but there's nothing I can say about it or do anything with it. I can only concern myself with what I can do. And here, in this country, we are blessed to be able to buy a copy of the book. We are all educated. We all can read. We have the time. We should do it. Make sense? That's what we should do. No. We're not talking about that kind of dramatic encounter with the devil. Most of the time, the devil does not come to us in physical form or attack us the way he did Padre Pio. In fact, when the devil does that, he's desperate. He's absolutely desperate because all the other tricks have not worked. Usually, he doesn't have to do this. All he has to do is whisper in our ear. That's all he has to do. That's all he has to do. He whispers. And we listen. And you've heard me say that many times. I'll say it one more time. There are three voices that speak in you. Three. Most of us are completely 
and often blissfully ignorant of the fact there are three voices in your head. Not one, three. They all sound like you. You can't distinguish them by the tonality. You get it? They all sound exactly like you, but there are three voices. There's you. There's your guardian angel. And there's the demon. The three voices. How can you tell the difference? Okay. Realize that your soul is like a fortress. We are in battle. Your soul is a fortress. Must be a fortress. How do you make it a fortress? You've been baptized. Therefore, you've received the graces of God. But most of us, what do we do? We open the doors wide. The doors are wide open. Everybody can come in. What, what do I mean by this? Every idea, every thought, every suggestion that comes to us, we allow it to enter all the way to our will. No protection. Understand that in this fortress, the outer door, the outer walls are always open. These are your senses. This is how you interact with the world. There's nothing you can do about that. However, the second wall, the door should be locked. And there's a guard there. Who's the guard? Your conscience. That must examine every thought in the light of Christ and either accept it or reject it. I'll give you an example. You are studying. You're doing math. Right there and then you're doing math. There is this image about this pretty girl that just jumps in your head. You're between two quadratic equations and the image of a pretty girl jumps in your head. What do you assume on the spot? Pardon? No, I wish. Most people think it's them. Because remember, we can do everything ourselves, right? How many think, oh, it's a devil? Yeah, wonderful. Most people don't. It's them. There's only one voice in their head. Right? Guys? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Instead, when a thought comes, if we are spiritual, meaning we live an interior life, what do we do? We do like Batman. We inspect and we trust nothing. Hold, watch. Where's that coming from? Now, how do you know? Here's how you know. Assuming you're living a life of grace, that means you're going to confession. You get it? Life of grace, confession. That's how it's connected. You're living a life of grace. A thought from you and imagine your soul as a lake. If, if it's your own thought that you're fabricating on your own, if it is a good thought, right, it does not disturb the lake. If it's a bad thought, if it's a thought that leads you to vice, it's like somebody who took a big boulder and threw it in the lake. There's a big splash. You are troubled. Jesus said, my soul is Troubled. Yeah? You're troubled. You're facing a temptation. So, when there's a thought that comes to you unbidden, you did not provoke it. You did not make the movie. It just happened. It hit you on the spot. 
you're doing the, uh, you're, you're cooking, you're doing something, and you imagine your uh, brother dying on a road. You would not even think about your brother. The, the thought comes and slaps you. Well, it's obviously not you. Obviously, somebody is fooling with you. Get it? Yeah. Okay, you just don't let it come in. You push it back. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection against the malice and snares of the devil. Huh? I said the Canadian way. I haven't learned the American way yet. I learned it in Canada and English. So anyhow, Saint Michael the Archangel prayer right out of the way on the spot. You defend yourself. You now rejected the offensive. You say this prayer six, seven, eight, nine, twelve, thirteen times until your peace is restored. You keep on going. <clears throat> Hold on, let me just finish. Let me just finish. Let's assume it is thought from your guardian angel. You're doing your quadratic equations, and a thought comes to your head. Shouldn't you call your mom and check on her? Same thing. You did not provoke the thought. You were busy with your equations, and the thought comes to you. Shouldn't you call your mom and just check on her? Now, you examine this thought. It's, an, it's a thought turns to charity. It's a thought turns to good. It cannot be from the devil. And obviously, it's not from you, because you're happy sitting there, lounging with your quadratic equations. So it's from your guardian angel. What happens in your lake? It doesn't disturb it. It keeps it peaceful. Your guardian angel is speaking and it's inspiring you to do something good. Now that's a good action. If you are faithful, you drop your pen, you get up, you pick up the phone, you call your mom. Get it? Now, flip this thing around. You are living in a state of sin. You're not going to confession. You're not examining your conscience. You don't know what you're doing. And the devil suggests an idea to you. Guess what? Your soul is undisturbed. Your guardian angel speaks to you. It's like somebody throwing a boulder in that lake. It's reversed. The three voices. Learn to distinguish them. That means you develop a really good devotion to your guardian angel. And by the way, if you don't have a devotion to your guardian angel, if you've never prayed to your guardian angel, you don't know what he does for you, here's what you do. And there'll be people here, witnesses of what I'm telling you. I've been t- saying this now for five years, I think. When you're driving, you're going somewhere, ask your guardian angel to find your parking spot. And see what he does. How many of you tried that? Thank you. Now, I don't want you to think your guardian angel is some valet parking guy out there. Right? He's an amazing being. He's a saint of incredible glory. But just to get you going, he's willing to do that for you. See what he can do for you. Develop a deep devotion to your guardian angel. And then you will be conscious of the voices. Because he'll help you and protect you. You understand? Three voices. Yes. The, the teachings of the church, when it comes to the demons, the only way to fight them is to run away. To run away to your mom. That's when you run away to your mom. And then you let them, you let her whack them. Our lady, you b- go back to Mary and you let her deal with them. So you don't try to reverse it. No, 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 no. Don't ever, because you don't want to talk to them. As soon as you do that, you're entering conversation with them. Bad. Bad. Ever, ever, ever. You don't... They are far, far more intelligent than we are. They're devious and they know us. 
because they don't sleep. They've seen humanity for as long as humanity existed, and they know exactly how to push our buttons. We don't know ourselves as well as they do. So therefore, we run away from them. The only conversation you want is you got an angel. Here's the deal. If God really wants you to say something to your brother, he'll send you that message to God an angel, not through a demon. So you just don't stay away from that. Yeah? Yes. Oh, very good question. Isn't it too much pride on our side to say the devil is attacking me? The answer is no, it isn't, because this is an objective truth found in Scripture. In the book of Revelation, when the devil was cast down on the face of the earth, book of Revelation, chapter 17, I believe, says very clearly, uh, no, chapter 12, verse 17, and the devil um, persecuted the woman and her children, all those who bear witness to the Lamb. You understand? So therefore, Scripture is telling us, He will hate you. He will persecute you. Jesus said the same. Right? It's a fact. It doesn't depend on you or on me. And oh, by the way, don't think that if you start praying now, let's say you're not praying. You just have to pray. He will attack you by saying, Hey, if you pray, I'm going to come after you. He's going to scare you away from prayer. But don't, don't be a fool. You know what? Satan is an angelic being. Whatever he does, he does completely. Therefore, he hates you now as much as he can. There's nothing you can do to make, you hate, to make him hate you more. You get it? He hates you as much as he can right now. Okay? That's the reality you deal with. That's not a, no, that's, that's the truth. That's just, this is the devil that you have to contend with. St. Peter, in his letter, says, Beware the devil who is like a roaring lion, going prowling around, seeking one whom he may devour. That's a letter of our first pope telling us, Watch out. So now, you have to contend with the devil. There's no way around it. Okay? Yes? It's both. It's exactly both. You do it, and he wills for it to happen. The proof is in life, St. Peter. Remember St. Peter? No, even if they all abandon you, I'll be right there with you. I'm going to die with you. Really, Peter? Before the cock crows away? Right? Okay. In the Gospel of St. Luke, he told him, Simon, Simon, the devil has asked to sift you all. Hmm? You all. The you is for all of you. I prayed for you, only you, Peter. Then when you come back, strengthen your brothers. So God already foresaw that Peter will go, will fall. But he prayed for him that when he comes back, he'll strengthen his brethren. So likewise for us. Why? Because God is love and because God loved us first. So the truth of the matter is on the cross. In the, at the end of the day, we can't look at our lives and think that there is something we can do on our own that will save us. There isn't. What we know is that he on the cross took a pen, dipped it in his blood, and signed a covenant that said, love me and I'll do the rest. And by his resurrection, he proved that he will do the rest. Because if he raised himself from the dead, 
He surely can raise our souls from the death of sin. No matter what. So all we have to do is believe. He will do the rest. Yeah? That's how it works. It's a matter of love. Yeah? You had a question? All right, God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.